Well, good morning. I'm Robert Kelly. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, the church. So glad that you've joined us for worship. And uh, just a quick survey. How many of you know who that is? Does it, I want almost want to ask who doesn't know and ask. No. And so, of course, everyone has to love Mr. Potato Head. I mean, he is absolutely one of the greatest of toys. He's a nearly 70-year-old toy. He is now part of the Toy Hall of Fame. Yes, there is a Toy Hall of Fame, and he is a member of that. He was also the first toy advertised on network TV. He's earned millions and millions, and he has gotten now new life through what? Toy Story, of course, Toy Story, where he and Mrs. Potato Head do uh, quite uh, a few very important uh, appearances. These are back, it kind of just brings us back to those nostalgic days where we would all play with a Mr. Potato Head. I think almost every one of us would have had a Mr. Potato Head back in those days. And it was neat about him is you could say, I like to think of Mr. Potato Head as... And then you could just let your imagination run wild, right? You could change them up and you could kind of like move things around and you could find other, you know, they like kind of weirdly store parts in his butt. And, uh, and so you, you could like make him into different things. And it was a pretty cool thing. I like to think of Mr. Potato Head as. So let's say that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Let's say that together. Ready? I like to think of Mr. Potato Head as what? Oh, you're supposed to tell me what, not just the... I like to think of Mr. Potato Head as... What? Which one? What? You're... What'd you say? Yourself? You're Mr... Okay. So that's not going to work with me here. Not helping me. But uh, we'll find someone else. What, like, what, what? Who did you make? Because, you know, there's all sorts of different choices, right? You could pick, you could pick Mr. Construction Worker, a pirate. You get Luke, you know, Scott. Even there's a Santa Spud. There's all sorts of sports spuds. Who was your Mr. Potato Head? Pirate? You like the pirate one, right? All right, so let's do it. Let's try it again. Now you got it, right? I like to think of Mr. Potato Head as? No, no, what, you pirate I heard? What else? Yours. Tell me what yours were. Who was your Mr. Potato Head? Dinner. Huh? Dinner. Yeah, nice. In the first service, somebody said a cannibal, because you remember the Lay's commercials? They were like eating their, it was, they were, it was a weird marketing campaign. But you know, this is one of the reasons we love him is because, of course, he is totally customizable. He could be whatever we want him to be that day. That's great. That's so much fun. And I think that this is the kind of God that most of us would be happy with. A malleable, a changeable, a customizable little deity that we get to play games with. This is the kind of God we like. Because we can shape him into any image that we want. So what's the image of God that you want? Because that's the image that you'll start to shape your deity into. God, of course, says no. No. There's no Mr. Potato Head God. He's not customizable like that. And as we've been studying along here, we're starting to look at the law of God. So open in a Bible called, Deut uh, in the book Deuteronomy chapter 5, 
verse 6. This is called the law. This is where we begin our introduction to the Ten Commandments, and we're going to be looking at two of the first Ten Commandments in the law of God. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6. And the very foundation of theology, of Christian biblical study, starts with this great truth found right here in Deuteronomy 5. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So there are no other gods. No other gods. That's as plainly put as the scriptures get. God is telling us this, that he alone fills the job description and meets the qualifications of God. There are no others. Verse 7, you shall have no other gods before me. This means that the other gods are not actually gods. This is a, this is a difficult teaching. I mean, you have to kind of let that sink in for just a minute because there's an exclusivity here that a lot in our day and age would find very uncomfortable. So you take, for instance, Hinduism with its multitude of gods. Some would say nearly countless gods. God of the Bible says not God. There are no other gods. You turn to Islam and you say, well, they have one true God, just like the, the Christians do, but when you, when you look at it, you find out these are very different gods, which means the God of the Bible says no, not God. Think of all the world religions, the pantheistic religions that say God is sort of in everything and a part of everything. No other gods. You start to hear and even sense experience the exclusivity that the God of the Bible demands. This is difficult for our modern ears. Yet we look out into the world and we find out, of course, there are lots of false gods out there. So this is from the prophet Isaiah. He gives us a little insight as to how this happened. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They're ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or an oak. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. 
Half the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? There are no other gods except the ones we fashion for ourselves. There is only one true God. How foolish is it to trust in gods of our own creation. You can hear the incredulity of the prophet. He can't even believe it. He can't even understand it. He's like, you know what it's like? It would be like melting down some plastic, putting it in forms, painting it just how you like, and then bowing down and worshiping it. It's like a Mr. Potato Head God. And you think, could anyone possibly ever do that? And I'd say, maybe it depends what he looks like. You know, if, if, because if he looks like this, maybe we would. <laughs> you know, maybe we could convince some people that the divine exists in this plastic that we've shaped with our own hands. Maybe if you will love him, if you'll offer sacrifices to him, He'll reward you. He'll protect you. He'll make you happy. Maybe if we built a shrine around him, then maybe some people could actually find it in them to worship him. And we think, come on. This is ridiculous. We know there are no other gods. Elsewhere in the Bible, it tells us not to worship all sorts of different things. For instance, in Romans... We're told not to worship the creation. In Colossians chapter 2, we're told not to worship the angels, any of the spiritual beings that are out there. I would add to that the saints. How often it is that we actually take a saint, we nearly deify them, we ask them to deliver us. We ask them, we pray to them. We ask Mary because for whatever reason, Jesus listens to her but not to us. So we ask her to get us what we want. The Bible tells us there's all sorts of things out there that we're inclined to worship. In Matthew chapter 6, we're told not to worship material things like the rich young ruler did in Matthew 19. We have the story of Samson. We have a guy here who's just pretty much worshiping himself. In 1 Corinthians 10, we're told that some people are worshiping demons and they don't even know it. So over and over again, that we find that there are all sorts of things, including things that we shape with our own hands, things that we shape with our own hands that we worship. And you'd say, oh, come on, this is ridiculous. It would never be something like this. But now just, just think through the intent behind this. What do you trust in that will make you happy? What do you trust in that will make you complete? Where do you look to find your deliverance? 
What is it? Because that's where you'll find your gods. And very often it will be the work of our own hands. It won't be something as obvious as a plastic potato. But it will be the work of our own hands. Or maybe for some, it's something out in the world, in the cosmos, a divine force. In the old days, they would take nature, a block of wood or stone, and we would declare it sacred, not unlike what we do today. We find the sacred in things, and it becomes somehow transcendent, the thing we try to connect to, to bring us to God. It might be our success or our salary. It might be our skill or our savings. For some, it's the sun or the sky or the scenery. I'm on kind of an alliteration roll, right? Did you notice that? Like, I worked a lot on all of those S's. And, you know, I just, it was kind of like I got excited about it. Maybe it's your scoreboard or your sacrifices or simply yourself. Or maybe you trust in the sciences or the saints or some statue or some other spiritual pursuit. But God says, no, there is no other God. Nothing you can smoke or snort. No star in the sky or star on the sidewalk. Not somebody, not something, not some time or somewhere. No stage you find yourself on, no steeple you serve under, no sexual pursuits, no surplus of stuff, no other gods. This is important for us to remember, to keep this in our hearts and minds. It's the first of these great commandments, and it sets the foundation for everything else we're to do and understand about God. Then God turns around and he says, listen, now... I want you to know me as I really am. Know me as I really am. Look at verse 8. Deuteronomy 5 verse 8. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Do not make any sort of an image, he says. This is important as well. And I think what he's trying to say is I want you to know me for who I really am, not who you want me to be. So I think certainly this has to do with making an image. I think that's kind of the, the first and most accessible understanding of this. So you can't make a physical idol. And other, other times I've, kind of, I've mentioned this, that statues of any sort or pictures or icons, any sort of a carving, any sort of an icon like that is immediately reductionary. And this is a problem for us because, you know, so let, I have pirate potato head here. And so if I make him into the pirate potato head, as soon as I start adding his pirate stuff to him, I get his little eye patch, and I even have like a, a parrot he, he's got here, and he's got all sorts of little stuff. I could even put an earring on him, but I struggle with this one, so we'll do that later. So you, you have a pirate. Now, as soon as you decide that the image has an eye patch, he can't not have an eye patch. It's immediately reductionary. As soon as I say he's got the parrot, then he's clearly the, the pirate potato head. And as soon as you do that, you're locked in to one image that catches your attention. This is why I think images are so dangerous, because they're immediately reductionary. 
So we have to be careful when we're talking about statues of Jesus and certainly of any sort of other, other false god, but even of pictures or statues of Jesus, even the crucifix will only tell us one very small part of the gospel story. It's immediately reductionary. And the complexity of this incredible God is such that to capture them in a still stagnant image will immediately lead us toward reducing our understanding of who he is. So I think this is one of the reasons that God has forbidden images to be made. But I also think it's more than that. I think it also has to do with this encouragement not to imagine God other than he really is. I think he's saying, don't, don't imagine me in any way or form other than who I really am. You, have to only, you can only imagine God as he, has refi- as he has revealed himself to be. Don't imagine him in other, any other way. Because we can't worship God according to our conception of him. The pictures that we paint of him in our head, they become, they become very limiting. They become reductionary. It actually means that we really start to say, well, I like to think of God as blank. What do you like? Let's say that together. Ready? I like to think of God as what? So you're going to add something here, right? And as soon as you add that, we can begin to, with risk, exclude the rest of who God is. I like to think of God as, you like to think of God as? How about we try to figure out what God thinks of God as? One theologian said, anytime a sentence starts with, I like to think of God as, you can be sure a trouble, trouble is going to come out of that. I like to think of God as. How often we've heard this or even said it ourselves. What kind of imaginations of God do we have? What sort of things do we conjure up? So you, know, you might say, I really do worship the God of the Bible now. That's great. We really do worship him. The problem is we imagine him in ways that are either incomplete or, in fact, dead wrong. Their own imaginations of him. They're not who he truly is. You know, so you, you might say, all right, in the past, before I was a follower of Christ, I used to just be after one thing. My, my achievement, my goals, that's what I worshipped. I was going to be successful, I was going to work hard, and that was my God, that was my idol. And then you came to faith in Christ, and you're like, wait, I'm not going to pursue my goals and, and my agenda and all of my success. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to pursue God, because now I'm a Christian. And it's a really good thing, because now God is going to make sure I accomplish all of my goals. Well, what have you just done there? All you've done is try to buttress your own pursuit of your goals with a divine being who you think you've got in your pocket. Now God has become your goal getter. Say, so, oh yeah, now God is going to make me happy. God is going to give me that perfect relationship. God is going to give me my dream job. God is going to give me wonderful, loving children. God is going to give me a puppy that doesn't Bite me and pee on my floor. 
Like, what's your imagination of God? We have these imaginations. And what we're really doing is that we're creating a custom God. It's a little potato head God. We're really saying, listen, you know what? When I want God to be a certain way, then I just get to imagine him that way. So, you know, right now, I'm really upset at my life circumstances. It is really, this is really aggravating me. God must also be angry. God is so angry, we're going to give him his little pirate sword so that he can start wiping out all of the people who oppose me. You know, we're going to make him unhappy because, you know, that we got to turn his, like, now make him sad somehow, right? Because he can't be, got to take his nose off to do that. He's upset. He's angry, God, now because he should be angry because I'm angry at all of the things that are happening to me. You're like, this is the God I like now. Until, of course, you start to wrestle or struggle. Suddenly you realize, wait a second, I've got some sin issues here. But, you know, the good news is, God's not an angry God. You know, we don't, because we, what we need is we need God to, to smile on my life. You know, we need, in fact, I don't even want him to look like a pirate anymore because, you know, what? He's a, he's a kind and he's a gracious God. He's a loving God. He smiles on my life because that's, of course, what I need him to do. And he ought to be happy with me. And he is happy with me. He won't judge my, my sin. We're going to keep the angry eyes in the butt because, you know, that's the, the, the angry eyes are a big part of them. But no, not my God. We want a God who approves of my lifestyle choices. That's what I need. I need a God who, who is going to respect my freedom to do with my body as I see fit. That's the God I will worship. I like to think of God like that. We're imagining God in our own ways. And we think that when we have this custom God, we're going to be happy. But we won't. We won't. We think that when we have a God who doesn't judge sin, let's say, we're going to be happy. But if God was really to leave you to your own devices, you're not going to be happy. You're actually going to increasingly be separated from him, and you'll be miserable in this life and even more miserable in the life to come. That isn't the kind of a God you want. You want God as he really is. And I think that God didn't want us making images of him because he had a plan to give us a much better picture of who he really is. The New Testament tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that Christ, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. That was the plan. So God gave us an image, which means that the exclusive claims that Christ has made have their precedent in the Old Testament law. There is continuity between old and new in this. It's as if the, the law was predicting the truth that Jesus was going to come and he would be the one true God. And the only way to this forever life, heaven, peace with God, is through Christ. And I know that the exclusive claims of Christ are hard for us to, to swallow. 
the Pew Forum did a nationwide survey, and they found that 65% of self-professing Christians believe that many religions lead to eternal life. 65%. So yes, they're Christians, but it doesn't really matter. All roads will ultimately lead to God. Half of religious people say that Islam and Hinduism will lead to God, and 40% say that even atheists with no belief in God whatsoever will actually find him. And you think, well, that's, those are national averages. There are a lot of crazy people out there. Yeah. You know. So what happens when you get closer to home? Well, interestingly, we did, you remember the survey we all did just a while back? So we're starting to crunch all these numbers now. We're learning a whole lot about who we are as a congregation. And we had a question very similar to this. We asked, all the different religions are equally good ways of helping a person find ultimate truth. Do you agree or disagree? All the different religions are equally good ways of helping a person find ultimate truth. And he they tell us 23% Agree or strongly agree? 15% are undecided, which means 62% would disagree or strongly disagree with that statement. Some 40% of, of our congregation doesn't believe that Jesus is the only way to God. 40%. That's nearly, that's nearly let's just call it 50%. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, right? This is what we're talking about. Half. We also kind of analyzed it based on some of the demographic inform information we gave. So you want, who, do you think, who do you think understands the truth about the exclusivity of Christ better, women or men? Women. Men. What's up? I don't even get it. I, we also did it by ethnicity. Are we allowed to do that? Can we like group you guys based on your ethnicity? I mean, you already marked it, so it's not really politically correct, but all right, so here we go. So... Asians, I'm talking to one, just the Asians here, you get it. You get it more than average. You do better, you, you actually understand better than the rest that Jesus is in fact the only way. Now, Hispanics and South Asians, and you're like, oh no, no, I thought we were part of the Asian group. No, no, South Asians, we, had, we separated you out. So you guys are average, so you get it just about as much as everyone else. Now, to my black and white brothers and sisters. <laughs> I don't know, I just, less likely to believe than others that Jesus is the only way. Those who attend Beacon more often have a better understanding except for some unusual anomaly. There are a group of folks who have been here between six to 10 years and who come at least 50% of the time or more who agree with this statement. You've been here a long time. So we started drilling in a little bit deeper. We found out that there is a strong correlation between the exclusivity of Jesus and those who serve regularly, those who are in growth groups, and our most sacrificial givers. So the people who understand it, they put their money where their mouth is, they put their time they actually give of themselves and they say, listen, this matters. Lost people matter to God and the only hope is found in Christ. We're going to serve. Now, shockingly, almost 20% of our covenant members and 20% of those who are currently in discipleship groups 
do not believe that Jesus is the only way. So that makes me ask, disciple makers, what are you talking about? Like, what are we actually doing? I, I'm, I, on Wednesday, I'm going to go back to my disciple maker. I have two disciples. I'm going, what is, how did you answer this question? That's what, we need to decide. I mean, I understand if others don't know, if they haven't been taught, they haven't been trained, but what are we talking about in our discipleship groups? And covenant members, you know, we're doing the, re, the whole re-up. You guys actually signed a statement saying that Jesus is the only way. 20% of you, like it's it, right here at the bottom. I said, do you, do you, have you read the statement of faith? Yes, of course I've read it. Do you agree with it? Yes, I do. Are you seeking covenant membership? Yes, I am. Do you believe Jesus is the only way? Not anymore. But you just, <laughs> like, I, 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 it was just there. And I know these are difficult things for us to wrestle with, but this is no small part of the Bible's teaching about Jesus. I just want to read out some of these verses and just kind of let them sink in. John 6 for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. John 8. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? John 14. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Acts 4, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 1 John 5, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's all over the scriptures. From the old to the new, Jesus is the image of God and the only way to find eternal life and to know the Father is going to be through him. And I really wish that I could come and say, hey, listen, the way to eternal life is broad and easy and everybody who's a decent person will find it. But it's not what the scriptures say. It's not what the Old Testament, the prophets, the law, it's not what Jesus taught, it's not what the apostles taught. It just simply isn't so. And I know that some think that that's arrogant and others say God is way too merciful for anything like that. All the religions are the same and they all lead up to the same place. It's just not what Jesus said. Will you trust him in that? You're not arguing with me about that. You're arguing with the word of God and you're arguing with Christ himself. Christ created us in order to delight in him. Not some other designer, customizable God, but the one true God as revealed in the image of God, Jesus. And nothing else is going to fit our New City Catechism, it ended, the video this week ended on Monday with this Augustine quote. 
And it's helpful for us to reflect on it. He says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. No other God will satisfy the deepest longing of the human soul. I'm going to ask the band to come up. They're going to lead us in a couple more songs. We're going to worship here a little bit, and then we're going to prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. And as we do this, the reason we do this is because of these great truths, that Jesus has, in fact, come and died for our sins, He's given us a way back to the Father that isn't dependent on on how good we are, how hard we work. It's based on a trust relationship with him. And he, he didn't do this because you were better than others, and he didn't do this because you were smarter than others. He did this for you out of his sheer love, and all we do is respond. There's no arrogance in receiving the love of God. And that's what we're asking for each of us to do today to allow uh, the Spirit of God, why we worship, why we, we come, and why we sing, to allow these great truths to shape who we are, to bring us ever closer into the presence of God so that we might yield more fully and completely to Him. Use this as a time. If, if, the, if you're not quite there, then use this worship time and the time at the Lord's table to do some business with God and see what it is you're resisting and why you're fighting against the call of Christ in your life. Would you stand as we as we worship?